Welcome to today's episode on SRHR and sex workers. It has been quite a while, and we missed you. If there's one thing that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to teach us, is that sometimes things will not go according to plan. And when that happens, we embrace the change. Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Emergent Strategy, reminds us that change happens. Change is definitely going to happen, no matter what we plan or expect or hope or set in place. We will adapt to that change or we will become irrelevant. In our embracing of change, we took time to slow down and honored our ability to create. We are mindful and cognizant that we are in the middle of a global health pandemic, among other global crises such as climate change, racial injustices, just to name but a few. Given that the production of this podcast is a collective effort, from the team at Stories to Action to our amazing guests, we honor that the collective struggle that we are all facing around the world requires the collective response of rest and slowing down. We're thankful to our funder, Shanet Netherlands, for being flexible and allowing us the container to slow down and re-energize. And here we are now. So, let's dive right in. The following well-crafted words are by and in honor of the Red Umbrella Fund. The Red Umbrella Fund is the first ever global grant-making collaborative guided by and for sex workers. Sex workers all over the world face widespread violations of their human rights. Criminalization and the severe stigma attached to sex work gives license to those who commit crimes of violence against sex workers and deny their humanity. It also makes it almost impossible for sex workers to access justice, healthcare, and social security systems. Sex workers would not be at such high risk of violence if they were respected as people and as workers and if they felt free to seek help and protection without fear of being stigmatized, jailed, abused, and disregarded. In other words, if their human rights were respected. Talking about things that make you uncomfortable and awkward is what we do. We break the ice so that you can freely talk about them. This is Not Your Usual Subjects Podcast with your host, Quem. In today's episode, we have a conversation with two sex workers, Kalitos and Samantha, who because of their safety, these are not their real names. We have an in-depth talk about their work and their lived experiences. They both share from a place of belonging to sex worker communities within their localities. We also talked to Lisa, a sex worker ally and university graduate with a strong interest in gender and human sexuality, more specifically sex work. Lisa shares with us about her findings following an exploratory research she did on OnlyFans. So, stay tuned. Also, at different moments in this episode, we'll be busting some myths and peeling some layers to get to facts on sex workers. Count Me In has developed a series of fact sheets, which is where we draw this knowledge. To access the fact sheet, simply in your browser, type in Count Me In Sex Workers Fact Sheet or check out our social media. Count Me In CMI exclamation mark Consortium is a strategic partner of the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
CMI consists of member organizations, that is Mamakash, the Association for Women's Rights in Development, AWID, CRARE, Just Associates, that is JAS, J-A-S-S, and the Sister Funds, Agent Action Fund, UAF, and Agent Action Fund, Africa, UAF-Africa, the Sex Worker-Led Red Umbrella Fund, and the Dutch Gender Platform, Women as Strategic Partners of the Consortium. Myth. No one chooses to do sex work. Fact. Choice is always limited, relative, and contextual. Most people worldwide work for money to survive. If you're poor, a person of color, a woman, transgender, or gender non-conforming, you likely have smaller range of choices. Whatever choice of work you make, your choice should be valued and your rights protected, promoted, and fulfilled. get into our chat with Samantha, she wishes to state that she is someone with a significant amount of privilege, both outside and inside sex work. She's financially been able to survive the pandemic easier than other colleagues, even though she stopped working during the full lockdown. Her experiences of sex work during the pandemic aren't representative of all sex workers, especially those who work unlicensed and or are trans, migrants, not experts, and undocumented. Thank you for joining us today, Samantha. Please introduce yourself to us, how you identify, where in the world you are, and about your work. Hey there, my name is Samantha, and I am based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Currently, I'm working in the windows and also doing some escorting. In the past, I've also webcammed and worked in a private house. Do you mind sharing with us what your experience has been as a sex worker during the pandemic, and if you could also from a community level, given that you're plugged in the sex worker community. Sex work has been a struggle during the pandemic. I can say that I was fortunate in that I had some savings when the pandemic first started, and I was also studying at the time and therefore received some help from my family too. Currently, I am working a bit here and there, but mostly I am living off my savings because I find the work to be so difficult and stressful in this period. There are fewer tourists and clients, and many, understandably, do not want to get themselves sick or are trying not to spend much of their own money either. Luckily, I was able to receive some income support for self-employed workers, since I am registered for the Chamber of Commerce as a freelancer. But most sex workers in the Netherlands are not registered as freelancers, or might not even work in the licensed sectors. These colleagues were left out of any COVID support packages from the government. Even if you could receive some income support, it was only for a thousand euros a month, and that did not cover some people's rent, let alone their other living expenses. Some individual municipalities did try to remedy this, but the majority of sex workers were still left out. Many sex workers, therefore, have continued working during lockdown, 
even if sex work was prohibited at the time. And it was actually made illegal for nine months during the lockdown, well before the current one that we are in now. Unfortunately, I heard from many colleagues that either they or other sex workers they know have experienced increased violence from clients during the pandemic. The clients knew that sex work was not allowed and that sex workers were not likely to go to the police because the police would likely punish them instead of helping them. The police did contact sex workers during previous lockdowns, but it was to tell them that they would be fined if they were caught working, not that they would protect them. Cities throughout the Netherlands have been cracking down on unlicensed prostitution, which has led to a lot of sex workers losing their housing. Four colleagues of mine also have killed themselves this past year because of all of this. Currently, even though sex workers are technically still allowed to work, it is still very much a struggle because, again, we see fewer good clients, fewer tourists, and licensed indoor workplaces must all close at 5 p.m. This is a problem because many clients either work during the day or do not want to visit during the day because they don't want to be seen. And in the windows, you always have to pay room rent for the workspace. But if you don't have many clients or clients who don't pay well, it's really easy to lose money. And unlike the previous lockdown, there's no longer any income support for self-employed workers or even just temporary support for necessary costs to apply for. This is super shitty, especially since there have again been recent reports of sex workers being robbed. Since the government hasn't really been doing anything for us this past year, sex workers in the Netherlands have started their own initiatives. I know SAVE, S-A-V-E, a small sex worker-led group I'm a part of, have started a phone line for emotional support for sex workers. SAVE also organized some bingo fundraising events to save and raise money for the community. Hella D, working closely with Trans United Nederland, also created the Dutch Emergency Fund, where she works with local sex workers to distribute donation money. Sexverks is a sex worker-led group in the south of Netherlands, and they've also been keeping in touch with community members in that region and just helping them however they can. Is sex work criminalized or decriminalized where you are? And with the added layer of navigating the pandemic, what has that been like? So yes, sex work is legalized here, but it really hasn't helped a lot of sex workers during this period. Of course, it is better than full-out criminalization, but only sex workers who are registered as freelancers have been entitled to COVID government support. So the community at large would have greater access to government support money if sex work in the Netherlands was fully decriminalized in all municipalities. What are some of the ways in which sex workers have adapted their work given physical distancing measures as a way of curbing the spread of COVID-19? Many sex workers just didn't see the option to physically distance and still earn enough money to survive throughout the pandemic. Some sex workers, like escorts, might only see one client per day and could more easily take distance than others. Myself, I see multiple clients a day in the window, or in normal times at least I do, 
but I've also been instructed to ask clients if they have any COVID symptoms before they enter. Regardless of the number of clients seen, it is impossible to keep distance once we are in the room together with clients, unless the client only wants to be whipped or talked to at a distance. But I do know that some sex workers limited themselves to seeing one client per day or max three clients per week, for example. I also know some sex workers who have have incorporated masks into their work, especially if they see a client who has not been vaccinated. But it is tricky because wearing a mask can really kill the mood in sex work and, of course, make some services impossible to provide. Some sex workers have also used certain positions during sex, such as doggy style, where there is less face-to-face contact. Sometimes I also take self-tests before work and try to limit my contact with people outside of work. If I do this, I'm sure that there are others doing such things too. In general, I would say sex workers were already very familiar with good hygiene practices. So things like washing hands and disinfecting surfaces was already part of the norm and didn't change much for us. How has it been accessing sexual and productive health information and services during this time? How has that changed with COVID-19? Though it was definitely more difficult for some sex workers to access sexual reproductive health information and services during the lockdowns, because many places throughout the public health departments were closed or required appointments. It depended on the location, though, and bigger cities are just better in that regard. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us that I haven't asked? SOA AIDS actually just published a report about sex work during the times of corona. So if any of the listeners really want to know more about this specific topic, I would recommend checking out that report for sure. Ultimately, sex workers are still struggling right now, and we do not want to put ourselves or others at risk of COVID, but it is difficult to do so when we aren't given proper support and when the government and law enforcement punishes instead of helps us. I would like to add that the Dutch Emergency Fund is still open and taking donations, and public support and sympathy would also go a long way for us. Right now, there are even some municipalities that are actively encouraging residents to snitch on unlicensed prostitution that is taking place in sex workers' homes. Instead of calling the police on a suspected sex worker, I hope that people stop and realize that by doing so, they could very well get that person evicted and they are not helping supposed victims of human trafficking either. We are just regular people trying to survive this awful time like everyone else. Myth. Criminalization of buyers and managers is the most appropriate feminist response to sex work. Fact. This is also called the Nordic or Swedish or end model. Evidence show that sex workers working in this context are less safe. Criminalization of any aspect of sex work drives the industry background and beyond the reach of health, social, and justice services. Such a joy to have you join us today, Kalitos. Would you please introduce yourself to us, how you identify and where in the world you're joining us from today? 
Hi, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, I'm in Norway right now, in Oslo. I work for a NGO here and also uh, been a sex worker for many years. And yeah, ready to answer any other questions that you have. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, so do you mind sharing with us what your experience has been as a sex worker in the years that you have been and, um, you know, in terms of the challenges that um, you have faced specifically in relation to accessing sexual and productive health uh, information and services? And also from a community level, given that you're plugged in the sex worker community in the NGO that you work in, I imagine that you um, are in community with other sex workers. Uh, what are some of the challenges um, in relation to sexual and reproductive health and rights, um, accessing information, accessing those services, and also just, you know, general challenges that, um, you know, come to mind? Yes, Quem, uh, um, as you say yourself, uh, we are... Um the community I am with here in Norway, uh, I have um, a lot of friends and colleagues that works uh, and has been working for long times and short times, uh, mostly men, um, heterosexual men, bisexual men, uh, uh, homosexual men. Um, and well, in Norway is uh, a little bit complicated because of the laws that we have here, like the Swedish model. And uh, that makes that nobody here can actually uh, work together. And this is very bad because uh, of um, the security that we could have as a whole team in one place. Um, the law makes us uh, work separately uh, in our own places, uh, exposed to, well, any danger that can be related to this work. Uh, also, it's not allowed to work from one rented place here. Uh, so, for example, if you rent an apartment and work from there, uh, the person renting to you can be charged as a pimp. Even this person don't know what you're doing, but only because uh, they are facilitating you, the place where you work from, then they are um, uh, seen here by law as a pimp. Any other person helping you getting clients uh it can be a friend that want to introduce you to a client then this friend will become automatically a, a pimp also a person that uh, pays for you your ad on internet on escort site will also be your pimp because they're also uh, facilitating your prostitution so uh this is the main things that are a little bit complicated here according to the pimping paragraphs that we have here so I cannot really work with another person in my flat because then since I'm the owner of my own flat, which is allowed, I can work from my own place that I have bought. And, but if I have another person here, then I will be uh, this person's pimp. Even I don't take any money, just facilitating the place is enough to be charged as a pimp. This is one thing. The other thing is that here in Norway, uh, and lately, uh, many places in Europe also now, are eradicating uh, what is the um, uh, cash, the money, the physical money, uh, so that they control better uh, where the money is coming from, where it's going to, everything. This has, uh, during the corona times, been, I think, uh, a very big problem for many, many escorts here, stranded in Norway. 
persons that live in other places, but because of lockdown and the first wave, they was locked in Norway and they could not get out. Uh, they didn't have any Norwegian bank account to receive money from clients because uh, clients here are very uh, like very much to transfer money on applications that go uh, with the transfers in a second. Uh, and pe- persons that don't live here have not access to this, only cash. And this has been uh, one of the biggest problems here in Norway that has made also escorts going from work independent to go to work to another uh, person that takes 50% of their income only because they can facilitate accounts where clients can pay money instead of using cash. Uh, Also, uh, during the pandemic, the other big thing was that uh, many escorts that were here uh, more than the time that they can be here, normally it's 90 days, uh, they were afraid to report anything to the police because they could get deported and have uh, after uh, problems to get inside the European Union. Uh, so many persons during pandemics that had problems with uh, violent clients didn't report that. Um, and in the NGO I worked to before, uh, we are uh, we had a lot of um, contact with people stranded in Norway and escorts that wanted help all across Norway, to know from uh, time to time what the new restrictions are, what it meant for them, uh, what to do in case the police came out, uh, on their door to make uh, immigration control. Um, so yes, it has been a very difficult time for any, anyone working here, uh, but it's a very big um, difference between migrants that come here and work without uh, have any residence here uh, and us that live here in Norway, because us living here in Norway uh, have another types uh, type of help that we can receive from the government, while the migrants that came here and don't have any residence uh, didn't have access to. So, uh, as I tell you, it was very difficult for many persons also, uh, since there were less clients uh, after the first wave, to um, to rent apartments because uh, all the apartment services was, was also locked down because of there were no tourists here. So that also forced many women that uh, I know of uh, to go and work for pimps that could facilitate a free place for work, but they had to pay uh, 50% of their income uh, and make them very vulnerable for um, these pimps to take advantage of them, uh, both sexually and also monetary. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, Kalitos. Um, what I'm getting is that the Nordic uh, model um, criminalizes bias of, of sex work, uh, but also, although it decriminalizes uh, sex workers, it takes a notion that strips away self-determination and agency of sex workers uh, as folks who have made these decisions for themselves. Um, and... Uh, seeing how that actually opens up, as you've said, financial and also just exploitation of, of, of sex workers in terms of just running uh, their business, you know. Um, I wonder what have been some of the ways in which sex workers um, in Norway have navigated around this? Um, 
this particular model? How has it been? What have been some of the innovations that uh, sex workers have taken in terms of just navigating and going around um, the, the Nordic model? And um, in addition, you also mentioned that this becomes a problem for migrant sex workers. Um, are there ways in which um, your NGO, for example, is working to support this? How is the resilience of the sex workers uh, having been built during this period? And yeah, so I'd, I'd be curious to know how that is. Um, I forgot to tell you um, that during the pandemic, uh, it was very important uh, for places that help sex workers in Norway to be open. And uh, we're a very small NGO. We, don't, we have a very small office and we don't have very much money. Uh, but all the work we do is mostly um, on telephone, online. We uh, have also a jurist that can help people in case of violent episodes or uh, if they have problems uh, uh, cr- uh, with criminal persons, um, but uh, there was a place. There is a place in Norway uh, that has existed for 35 years. It's uh, the name is Pru Center, which is a, a abbreviation for the prostitution center. Uh, this is finan- uh, uh, financed by uh, the government of, of Oslo, uh, Norway, and um, the municipality of Oslo. This is a uh, free of charge uh, service for uh, sex workers, uh, healthcare, um, which is that the tests and, and, and medicines also if you need PrEP or uh, retrovirals for people with uh, HIV, uh, free condoms, lubricants. Um, they started uh, during the pandemic because they never closed. They never closed. Uh, they could not receive so many people, but I know that they were uh, not close. They were actually um, helping people as we uh, did, uh, um, answering uh, the WhatsApp, for example, and go on flats where escorts were to uh, announce all the time the new restrictions that uh, that uh, was applicable for them. Uh, and they also started to um, deliver some f- uh, basic food, uh, like a food package uh, with different kind of uh, things that people needed. And uh, we, in, uh, in my organization, in, in my NGO, Pion, uh, we received donations of money, which we were giving away <clears throat> for escorts here, uh, like a gift card with uh, 100 euros uh, that we um, was... Um, giving away to, to sex workers that really need the money. Uh, and I think that we had a donation of almost uh, 10,000 euros that we were um, giving away. And this was the things that we could do in, during the pandemic to help. But actually, we missed uh, any type of help from the government because it didn't come. Um, we, you, we, you can see it as it like the government facilitated the center not to close, uh, but um, also there were no there were no um, clear uh, message from the government uh, as in the first wave if prostitution were to be stopped at the time uh, or if it was allowed. 
So after I, I think after a couple of months after this started the pandemic, um, they announced that it will be like um, short period of time where it will be illegal because normally it's legal to sell sex in Norway, but not to buy. But uh, because of the pandemic and the risk of getting um, COVID, then also for sex workers, as also for master, uh, normal uh, masters and physiotherapists, it was not allowed to, to have open for business. Um, so also it's, uh, it's very hard uh, when you work in an organization uh, for sex workers to not have a clear message from the government and, not, uh, and also don't have any kind of support from them. You know, like we see in other countries in Europe, uh, gave support to sex workers. Um, we have lots of communication with uh, NGOs in Spain, for example. Uh, they did something like PONDD in Norway. They, they, they get donations. Uh, sex workers that somehow were doing it better than others donated money so that this can be uh, this, uh, given away to other escorts that had a very bad uh, time. Um and well, um, I can also t- say that um, I think I think the whole pandemic uh, was or is still uh, here in Norway um, has been very devastating for many uh, escorts that has no other option but to work in this uh, business. Uh, for example, migrants, um, and those I think are the most. Um, hidden by the, the pandemic uh, because uh, as, as I tell you, I, I talk uh, every week with at least 40 people on our help uh, line on the telephone or WhatsApp and um, many women from Latin America selling sex in Europe uh, say to me all the time that these times are very bad and this is the only thing that they can do because of uh, the language uh, they cannot speak English. They cannot go to another country to try to apply for work. Um, <clears throat> there is over demand in uh, in like washing work, uh, work or house uh, house uh, help work. So they uh, there are not works for them to find. So this is the only option that they have, and are not making any money now because all the restrictions, all the fir- first, second, third waves that was all the lockdown. The clients are scared, um, and uh, here in Norway, uh, in, in the th- in the second wave, they start to deport escorts here, which uh, were working, and that were from on, uh, were from another countries that was not Norway. There was deported, uh, even if they were here legally, um, within the ninety days they can be here, uh, and even if they have anything. Um, for, for, for work here, they was deported because uh, they saw uh, the health department here saw them as a threat because they could con- uh, they could uh, con- con- I don't know the word in English uh, but they, they could um, spread COVID to their clients and their clients mostly married with women and ch- children so it would be like a huge problem uh, but the, the government didn't say this clear. One day in December last year, on Christmas time, the first case came in with a girl from Colombia that had uh, just arrived in Norway. And the police came to do the immigration control. And they humiliated her 
and told her that she has to leave and that uh, she was not welcome here now. It was a pandemic. She could not work an, as an escort. And and the government never came out to announce that now we are going to restrict all sex workers and uh, because of uh, the, the pandemic. But uh, she was the first one deported. Uh, her case came in the, in the newspaper. And after after she was deported, they started to deport many other girls. So this was the uh, migration police in hand in hand with uh, um, the immigration authorities and the health uh, department here. So this continued for I think three months, and we were in contact with like sixty girls and boys uh, that got deported from Norway only because. They were selling sex here, uh, and many of them uh, European citizens. Uh, but at the time, they were told by the police that they could not be here because they were spreading COVID to other clients. Um, so that was uh, that that uh, that stopped in March this year after. Um, we uh, and other organizations here write a letter to the Ministry of Justice, which is a woman. And I think uh, we also mentioned this in media many times. And then the police stopped suddenly. And uh, we didn't hear about any case now. Uh, Now that the borders opened uh, some months ago, and the police uh, started to do their routine control on migration, but they only asked for the certificate of uh, vaccination and um, which date they enter in Norway, and then they leave. So it, ha- it now it's like in before the pandemics, we have not heard about anyone being deported. So I think things are a, a bit better now, um, but still. Um, many, uh, oh, the whole pandemic and the situation with the police here has made that uh, sex workers don't have any trust in the police. Uh, if they from before were skeptic, now they are like no trust at all. And this is very sad because if anything happened related to a bad client, uh, a violent client or, or a criminal activity, um, then they will not go to the police. And I think this is a... Um, this is a main issue with, with many other countries uh, where the sex workers don't have any trust in the police and are afraid to go to the police. One of the things that you mentioned that uh, your organization supported sex workers with is uh, money. You said 100 euros uh, for sex workers who had lost their livelihood during this time. And I know that um, according to uh, research that was done by... um, by Mama Cash, uh, Red Umbrella Fund, and Open Society Foundations uh, titled Funding for Sex Worker Rights, that although there has been an increased amount of funding from since 2006, the investments remain small. Now, from your sharing today is that there has been different ways in which you your organization, for example, has had to support sex workers during the pandemic to, for their survival. Um, are there any demands or any sharing that you'd like to make in relation to funding sex worker rights and funding sex worker movements? Here, the money that we received uh, in my organization were um, like public donations, mainly, uh, as I tell from another sex workers, 
maybe from clients. We don't know who this person were, but uh, we um, we asked for money and, or for, for um, um, help to uh, and specific to help sex workers that were having bad times. And I would very much like um, the government here to take more uh, part and include all the population. Nevertheless, you are here legally or not, because the pandemic is uh, like uh, a, a very big thing. It's, it's not like that you come here and you don't have work and then you try to to manage to find some uh, way to survive. It was uh, not planned at all. And many persons also that had uh, stopped selling sex started to sell sex again because they lose their work, they lose their their jobs, and and the situation was very hard for for many for many persons. So uh, from the big organizations in Europe, um, yes, they give maybe more money, but I I feel and I sense uh, somehow that the money are maybe not being distribu- distributed very good because, uh, for example, we um, we saw that 100 euro was what not, was not enough. And totally we have, like, uh, many, many persons, uh, not only one time with 100 euros, like up to f- uh, three times, I think, that we were <laughs> giving away and trying try to use all the money that we had on them, on the people that uh, were struggling, of course, 100 euros is nothing uh, compared to what it cost to buy food here in Norway and to pay rents. Um, so yes, um, I would also like uh, propose to other uh, sex workers to that are in a, how can I say in a better position, no? But in a better position that has anything on order, maybe this is just like a, a side work, <coughs> but to also um, cooperate and and uh, be more empathic and donate also maybe to organizations that they know are helping escorts. Um, because I think that... Um, even if you call yourself VIP escort or if you work in the streets, we are all doing the same work. So uh, it's like um, sometimes people see, no, I'm not like this. Uh, I'm in this uh, like privileged group. Uh, so it's me and them and not, not us together. I, I see escorts uh, or sex workers, uh, how you call it, uh, to be a whole as one, if I know, if you know what I mean, uh, and only people to, uh, for people to be more empathic, if you are in a better position, to could help others, and of course, we, um, we uh, miss a lot of activists worldwide. I know there are many persons with very uh, good uh, strategies and that knows very good about politics that are sex workers uh, and work maybe in 
some key organizations or entities were uh, were around, but they don't want to spoke out. And I I, I comprehend why, but I, I think we need much more activism in sex work. That's quite a lot. Um, and I think that conversations like this bring us to a place of noticing and being very aware of the violence that has taken place during COVID-19 and the excuse that different governments um, and different institutions like the police have taken advantage of um, to perpetrate violence against sex workers. And as you said, this is something that has been taking place globally. And I just want to uphold the work that you do within your organization in supporting sex workers and and supporting sex worker rights, um, especially during this time um, and beyond and even before. Um, One of the things you mentioned is that you get a lot of confused messaging from the government, right? Because even from your sharing with us today, um, there have been conflicting situations in terms of what the government is saying and what the government is doing. But I'm most interested in what your messaging is, what your messaging as a sex worker, what your messaging is as um, a community-based uh, uh, movement within Norway. What, what, what is the messaging that you'd like to put forward um, in our conversations today so that we can uphold that? Well, for the first um, many years now uh, that I wor- that I have worked on this uh, NGO, I have requested from time to time that we uh, go in a some kind of deal with the police here. Uh, and I, I myself and others would demand that uh, a police, a special police group working towards sex workers um, get to know us, get to know sex workers, get to know how they can uh, uh, encounter sex workers in a positive um, way so that uh, we can have a good cooperation because prostitution is never going to disappear. And uh, as long as the police worldwide uh, don't know how to behave in front of sex workers, um, it will never stop this this uh, um, this feeling against the police, you know. Uh, and, and actually, in Norway, the police are very nice here. But uh, when they encounter a sex worker, I think many times they don't know how to how to uh, handle, how to to talk, uh, and also they they need. Um, they need uh, they need persons that can go and uh, and teach them how to refer to and how to talk to and when they encounter sex workers and sex worker activists uh, because this is a f- uh, f- uh, free of, uh, free country where you can speak yourself out from from the bottom of your heart and I think uh, Norway is very good in many many ways. And it's very very sad that the poli- that the uh, migrants coming here, as well as us living here, are scared of calling the police if something happens. Uh, if if it's not safe in Norway, as 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 one of the best countries in the world to live uh, with good quality of life, if 
we cannot feel secure with the police beside us. Where in the in the world uh, will this happen? Will this happen? So I think uh, we need to meet the police. The police need to meet us in a positive way, and they should get help um, from places like us or Pro Center that has existed for 35 years, as I, as I tell you, and that is finance, uh, financial by, by the government of, of uh, Norway to um, learn and have like uh, some studying with the police and, and, and teach them really some manners uh, with sex workers. The second thing is, uh, which I didn't mention in, in the first uh, part where we spoke, that were, is also very important and also very difficult now uh, more than ever, um, is that we also want to talk to the tax authorities because now it's uh, very complicated, uh, the situation uh, for sex workers here with this... Um, new uh, uh, money laundry uh, uh, laws that the uh, European Union have um, so that uh, here uh, when you put your cash inside the bank they will automatically ask where this money come from and if you don't give a good reason and can also prove where it comes from they can ban you from using that bank and other banks. So without a bank, what will you do? This is some of the ca uh, new cases this year that uh, uh, my organization and others in Oslo uh, had. Uh, I think we were in contact with six women and men that got contacted by their bank where the bank was actually asking where their money came from and if they could not prove that it comes from legal activity, they will block the bank account and ban them from using that bank. Uh, and all because uh, you can work as sex worker here legally, but the money that you earn must you pay tax of. And this is a paradox because the pimp, uh, one of the, the, uh, uh, the paragraphs in the pimping law here is that anyone that take advantage of your body to get money, like uh, taking advantage of your prostitution and get your money, is by law a pimp. In this case, the state. The state will become your pimp because they are taking money from sex workers, from sex work, uh, to, uh, to pay taxes. And you will have no... Uh, you will have no goods uh, for it back. So it's very complicated for a migrant that comes here to get an, uh, a green card to work when you don't have any normal work contract that, uh, you, so you, that you can pay tax. So what migrants need to do when they come to Norway to could pay tax uh, is to open like um, a self-employed uh, company uh, where they can uh, register as uh, masseuse or like uh, erotic dancer or like uh, uh, a sex worker. But uh, the registers here are open so everyone can see it. So it's not very popular. And, uh, and then you have to pay a very high amount of tax. So if you're a sex worker that only do this 
sometimes in the month, it will not uh, be uh, good for you to pay tax because you will end up without no, no money at all. So these are the most complicated things. I, uh, we are following up um, the, the, the tax authorities here and we have for many years without getting a clear, um, clear answer from them because the tax authorities want the financial department of Norway to make it more smooth to could pay taxes as migrant and as sex worker. But uh, they too are in a fight um, and they don't, uh, they don't agree uh, so that, uh, because that means also that you have to change the PP paragraph. If, in order for sex workers to, to pay taxes, as I see it. Um, because it says very clear, if you have a pimp that take uh, some of your money, uh, or, uh, or one person, they will become a pimp, in this case, the state. So it's very, like I said, it's very like complicated, all this, uh, all this issue here in Norway. Um, and of course, that ends that uh, sex workers will be more excluded, uh, they'll go more into uh a low key position where persons that like me that wants to speak out are very afraid to do it because of the consequences that it can have so kalitos one of the things that um you mentioned um is that during the pandemic there was or there has been um a lot of arbitrary arrests uh by the police of sex workers in a bid to curb the control of COVID-19. Um, but we know that, you know, instead of doing that, supporting sex workers and um, to access, you know, uh, the rest of the COVID-19 measures that uh, folks had, um, you know, would have been the best step towards curbing COVID-19 over, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking in relation to the migrant sex workers, um, instead of supporting and caring as a human rights um, issue of, of these migrant sex workers. Um, instead, what was done was um, violence, really. So, and whilst you're in that conversation of not being able to um, do sex work during the period because of uh, physical distancing, I know that um, digital intimacy and digital ways of, of, of selling sex were some of the uh, ways in which um, sex workers around the world were innovating um, how to go about their work. Um, I wonder how that has been in, in, in Norway and in your experience. Well, of course, uh, during the pandemic and because of the social distancing, uh, many escorts had to reinvent themselves, being more creative and how they uh, got in contact with their clients and how they sold their services. Like, for example, uh, I know that during the pandemic, um, the use of OnlyFans exploded exploded so much suddenly every escort uh, i was talking to had an unreal fan account uh, also um what exploded also was a private sale of pornographic material from escorts to clients and you could suddenly see many per uh, escorts in oslo or norway uh writing in their profiles that i don't meet uh, anyone physically right now, but I can entertain you over the cam 
uh, over Telegram, over Signal, over WhatsApp, over Snapchat, um, or you can only follow me on OnlyFans. Um, and this, I think, has has been something that um, that has been uh, very uh, that you can notice. Uh, that you could notice during the pandemic, some of the first changes I, I saw was, was this. And suddenly also I saw many escorts from other, um, from Southern Europe, for example, advertising on Norwegian platforms uh, to get Norwegian clients um, because this opened a new kind of um, services uh, that you didn't uh, need to be physically in Norway uh, to meet a client uh, Face to face, but you can sit down in in Spain and talk to a client here and just doing cam. Um, and that was this was also very as accepted by many clients uh, that started to pay for videos, started to pay for online um, services, uh, cam shows, um, these kind of things. Um, and another thing that uh, I can think of is that uh, here in Norway, in the first wave, clients were not very um, thoughtful about uh, the consequences of getting COVID because in the first wave, it was not very, people were not so much scared here in Norway. It was in the second wave that it was worse because then we have seen uh, people dying in the first wave and the consequences of uh, or have had COVID before, like people uh, didn't smell or sense any taste at all uh, many months after. Even some people have not recovered uh, from that yet. Also, uh, people have a uh, problem with the eyes, with seeing, with hearing, uh, muscular problems. So, the clients got really afraid, I think more afraid on the second wave. And that was a very bad time for sex workers here. You can see literally that uh, escorts didn't have any clients at all. Um, so yet at that second wave, we also missed the a helping package from the government. But uh, what was... Um, if I have to mention anything positive that happened, um, I we as an organization suddenly saw that persons that never took contact with us, persons that never, uh, when we sent some information about our organization, uh, they never, like they read, but they never take contact, they suddenly started to take contact with us and tell us about their situation, how frustrating it was, like they didn't have anyone to talk about uh, with, with um, the troubles they were in or the situation they were in because many persons in this, in this business cannot come out loud and say to their family or friends. So they are quite isolated and living a double, uh, double life. Uh, so then suddenly we start to receive uh, Con uh, contacted messages from different escorts living in Norway, uh, ethnical Norwegian, for example, women and men, but was very frustrated and very scared about the situation, and also many migrants. So I, I think that this 
made uh, the community more uh, that they come to closer together. Um, that other escorts start, uh, uh, at least here in Norway, start to help each other with place to stay and to accommodating them um, and and to give each other a hand. Uh, and we as organization, we came in contact with, with many people that, that, as I told you before, uh, were thinking about to go and start working for a pimp because they didn't have clients, they didn't have money, they were stranded in Norway, their countries of origin were closed, so they could not leave Norway also, the airport here was closed, uh, so they had no other option than to go and start working for a pimp, only for a place to, to live and stay. Very dramatic. Uh, but we saw also that many escorts tried to help each other and uh, tr uh, try to accommodate uh, persons. But as I tell you, this is like a go against the law because you cannot receive any escort working in your place because you can be their pimp. You can go to jail for that, for this kind of help. So, yes, I think, and, and also uh, the communication on WhatsApp during the pandemic exploded in our organizations. I was uh, the first one uh, applying WhatsApp for our, uh, yeah, our users. Uh, so we know that many persons, migrants that come here don't have a SIM card from Norway or they don't need to because everything goes on the internet now, on the Wi-Fi. So uh, WhatsApp was a very good uh, uh, platform to communicate with persons in northern, uh, the north part of Nor uh, Norway, in the south, uh, or, or in other countries that we know uh, from before, uh, people that we follow up, and they could suddenly contact me from Germany, from Belgium, uh, from, uh, from South Africa, from Colombia, and tell me uh, and ask and start talking to us and, and, and tell us our sto their stories and how frustrating it all was and how scared people were. So we have like a international um, <laughs> uh, international platform of, uh, for help other escorts anywhere in the world. Uh, that has been in contact with us before, that or that they had uh, uh, contact with us before. So yes, uh, and of course now we are on WhatsApp uh, all the time because WhatsApp is not really a very used platform in Norway, uh, only for people that don't live here. Uh, but now everyone uses it uh, to contact us. Uh, we'll receive more WhatsApps than normally telephone calls or SMS. So uh, it has come for us to, to stay, and this is a very um, good uh, platform to communicate with other escorts uh, across uh, the world. Myth. Sex work is inherently violent. Fact. Sex work between two consenting adults is not violent. The criminalization of sex work, its discrimination and stigma is what gives rise to violence and other human rights violations. Lisa, a sex worker ally and now university graduate, for her thesis compared the social perception of sex workers on OnlyFans to the social perceptions in other types of sex work away from the digital platform. 
Besides her academic research, she is also invested in changing perceptions on sex work through voluntary work at the Prostitution Information Center in Amsterdam and through contributions to projects such as the Anti-Discrimination in Sex Work Program and Reimagining Sex Work Workshops. So glad you could join us today, Lisa. Welcome. Please introduce yourself to us and where you're joining in the world uh, from and how you identify. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for inviting me here. My name is Lisa. I use the pronoun she, her, and I'm currently speaking with you from Amsterdam, where I live. Now, we're going to just get right into it because I'm so excited for our conversation. Now, uh, you did a very interesting research for your master's um, thesis. Please tell us about it. Yeah, thank you so much. So um, for my master's thesis, I actually for my bachelor's thesis, it was I researched the uh, popularity of OnlyFans and I uh, explored whether it had changed perspectives on sex work. So I did this through multiple perspectives. Um, first, I tried to consider the place of sex work within a broader discourse, the place of OnlyFans within the broader discourse of sex work and see how uh, its situation and the way that stigma are displaced on people who are doing OnlyFans may differ from uh, the stigma that sex workers in all different types of sex workers are facing and living with. Um, after this, I also compared how OnlyFans can be um, placed against different digital platforms. Um, and then I looked at visual aesthetics, uh, the reliance on other apps, and also the way that certain body types are um, valued more or less. Um, and then this finally came to my conclusion where I tried to see why OnlyFans had such a big peak of popularity during the first COVID lockdown. And I checked out how this changed our perspectives on sex work, on work itself, and um, on digital intimacy as such. So in your exploration on how OnlyFans may have broadened the public perception um, of sex work, uh, could you share what came out of that? What some of the interesting things that came out of that? Yeah, well, what was quite interesting is that initially um, I my interest in OnlyFans was sparked because I read so much about it in news. I heard so much about it uh, on other social media platforms. It sounded like everybody was on it. So celebrities were on it. Um, big names and pop music were uh, making reference to it. So it really sounded like it was everywhere and people were much more okay with it. It was much more a topic that you could speak about uh, in any social setting than um, other types of sex work. So for example, um, physical sex work or webcamming or pornography. Um, so I was really interested in how this could be different in OnlyFans and where this different difference came from. So my initial um, hypothesis was that the popularity of the platform really changed the perspective on sex work. And what I found is that it actually did not at all. Um, even though doing OnlyFans is still in a way more socially acceptable than, um, for example, webcamming or uh, doing physical sex work, either in the red light district or as an escort or in any other type of form that are possible. Um, the stigma that these types of sex work face is still very persistent and is still very real. And especially during the COVID period, sex workers and all other types of sex work of the work really um, face this stigma and disrespect. Whereas um, this is quite different for people on OnlyFans. 
Um, so what my conclusion in that part was that is that it did not change the perspective on sex work as much. It may have broadened the perspective on sex work because speaking to people around me, I noticed that their initial idea of the work is very much um, like prostitution, red light district, um, these very almost cinematic ideas of a pretty woman that people have of sex work. And I feel like the popularity of OnlyFans perhaps broadened their perspective and say, okay, well, this is not physical in a way that it is between a client and an escort or a sex worker, but it is still sex work. So it did broaden the perspective of the work, but it did not change the stigma as much as I thought it would. Maybe just to bring you back uh, to something you'd mentioned uh, that notably, and I think this is something that you know I also uh, saw coming up, was that um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, well, now, um, the use of OnlyFans was definitely... Um, you know, um, more pub more publicized, and and also because of uh, physical distancing and social distancing and all of that, um, most sex workers um, broadened their work um, into um, OnlyFans. Now, what what was it like um, in terms of whilst you were doing your studies? pre-COVID, um, what was that looking like? And um, <clears throat> the other thing that I think I found quite interesting in terms of um, sex workers' notions around OnlyFans is that, well, given that there, there are other acceptable folks who are popular, for example, uh, using OnlyFans, um, uh, and ending up to... Uh, to take away sort of um, the spotlight um, from sex workers, um, the fact that that did not really take away the stigma. I think there was something around that, and I'm and I know that I am struggling a bit to just um, share what that might be. But I wonder what notions uh, might have come up whilst you're having conversations with sex workers around um, who were the users, or rather, who are the users of OnlyFans, and and how um, you know the notions of class, the notions of privilege, and uh, social acceptability still went on and to destigmatize uh, sex workers workers on there so yeah what 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 um what are some of the things that came up around that yeah you put it really beautifully um so what i noticed that um even though OnlyFans really distinguishes itself as a platform from other um platforms for digital intimacy for example um yeah pornography channels like Pornhub or uh, webcam channels um it's very different in a way that you're not really it's not categorized and you can, there's no search function. So usually you could search for um, particular types of uh, people that you want to see or types of sex that you want to see. Uh, and that's very often fetishized. It's very, um, it diminishes certain body types that are not seen as typically sexy. It diminishes people that are not uh, socially accepted in the same form. And initially, OnlyFans was celebrated for the fact that it did not have that function. People could only really be found by typing in their exact username, which kind of gave everybody an equal playground. So um, an Instagram model would have the same playing field as uh, somebody who's a newcomer to OnlyFans and who's doing sex work for the first time or somebody who's been doing physical sex work all their lives and then is coming to the platform. 
so that's how the first um, the first celebration of the platform uh, came to start. Then it appeared quite soon that this this way of finding people through the search function actually only emphasized the differences in the social differences in class and in uh, aesthetics uh, because it's only really possible to have many people find your username on OnlyFans if you already have an Instagram account or a Twitter account with a lot of followers. And because Instagram and Twitter use these very particular, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> use very particular um, ways of distinguishing which bodies do you want to see and which bodies do you, do you not want to see. So on Instagram, the more typically aesthetically pleasing bodies will always be put up more at front to the top of your Instagram page, you will see those bodies more, these people will get more views, um, whereas other bodies or people who are more seeming like sex workers um, in their idea will get shadow banned or diminished. So you see that people who are, yeah, um, wealthier or have more access to have more Instagram followers will also get more OnlyFans followers if they want to. And for people who have body types that do not match this aesthetic ideal, it's much more difficult to gain the same amount of money. And as you said earlier, this is especially emphasized by the enormous popularity of the platform, which saw uh, celebrities during the platform, for example, like Bella Thorne. Um, and then if it's even more people with even more followers, they're not really um, yeah, keeping it an open field for all um, all sex workers and all people of different body types who may want to join the party because it's already so flooded with people with a lot of Instagram followers with these idealistic body types. Yeah, thank you so much um, for sharing that exploration with us. Now, at some point this year, OnlyFans announced that they will be banning uh, porn online on OnlyFans rather and of course they, re- they have since uh, rescinded their their decision to not do it um, anymore but I just wonder like what are some of the interlinking notions with what you found in your study in terms of you know OnlyFans having broadened the public perce- perceptions of sex work and then leading up to the point of you know the, the the almost ban of porn and then uh, the rescinding of their decision uh, because for me I think what and and I, it's also something I saw folks talking about sex workers talking about regarding how OnlyFans whilst it was created really for different creators to uh, share their content uh, that pay per view content uh, to users. Um, Porn uh, and and sex work really is what built and moved uh, OnlyFans to where it is today. And then um, the ban was, you know, OnlyFans cited that their banking institutions or financial institutions uh, brought up this issue around payment and all of that. But in even within that, I sensed and again the notions, rather the, the the narratives that I saw from sex workers and online also just upheld this, that the bodies um, and the labor of sex workers were used to get OnlyFans to where it was. And then for such a decision to 
be put on the table. I mean, it, it speaks to really the perceptions that the public, and in this sense, financial institutions, and we also know that this was backed up by uh, fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists, religious fundamentalists, um, you know, and, and conservatives. So what, what are some of the things that came up for you when this happened? And yeah, I'd be curious to know about that. Yeah, you explained it really well. Um, this change in uh, their policy happened right after I published my thesis. And um, it was really interesting for me to hear because it was especially something that I kind of already um, thought would happen. And I already proposed it in the end, in my conclusion of my thesis, because uh, I noticed this um, paradigm and this pattern where sex workers uh, were slowly getting kicked off the platform and they were getting more and more uh, notifications of that and they were putting that on their Twitter saying we're getting um, pushed off of the platform for no reason and they're getting no explanation other than content that is not following their guidelines while well, they still were, still a pay-per-view platform and then what happens within these guidelines was still possible. So there were more and more um, alarming signals of the platform kicking off sex workers and solely focusing to the celebrities that are that were slowly joining the platform, as I already mentioned, and like you said, they joined the platform because it had got gotten so big due to sex workers. They really helped it get so big and helped it get its popularity. And after OnlyFans saw that popularity had risen enough, they chose for a different target group, which is now very much influencers, um, famous people, so singers, uh, sporters, musicians, and other types of people who can sell their content um, in a pay-per-view way. Um, and yeah, it's, it's incredibly sad. I really expected that this would happen. Um, and I'm really glad that they overruled the decision in the end, but this only happened because there was so much social outcry about it and there were so many people um, actively combating their decision. Um, so this is still partially a platform for sex workers, but it's not really comparable to the way it was when they started it. Yeah. Um... And I think something else that uh, remains really is that sex workers no longer feel safe anymore uh, being on the platform because if, you know, this decision came up um, and went away, um, the, the there is a sense of fear of the possibility of it coming up again for very many different reasons. Um, yeah, um, so... Away from your research, Lisa, um, did you find, or really just still rooted in your research, really, did you find um, any opportunities that lay uh, within um, access to sexual and productive health um, services and information to sex workers uh, on OnlyFans? Um, so really just were there any interlinkings between SRHR and 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 how digital intimacy is taking place right now? And what are some of the opportunities that, you, for example, you might have found with uh, within OnlyFans? And, and even uh, before you answer that question, I think for me, what continually came out, um, given the role that sex workers played in building OnlyFans, um, what I would imagine, what I would hope to happen is that actually this is really an opportunity for advocacy for, you know, sex workers. Um, I feel that uh, 
OnlyFans does have, a, you know, a social responsibility to explore ways of making um, OnlyFans safe for sex workers, um, ensuring that there's um, information that would be supportive of sex workers available to sex workers, uh, you know, on OnlyFans. Given that the pandemic was happening, finding ways of supporting sex workers with resources, right? Because um, you know, what What would solidarity look like for such a platform that has been largely built by sex workers going back to sex workers at a time when they needed the most? So for me, it was such a big disappointment in terms of what happens. But really, those are some of the things, those are some of the 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 evils um, that we see with with uh, patriarchal and 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 within within a patriarchal and, and a capitalistic society. But really, again, back to my question: um, Yeah, were there any relationships or were there any opportunities that you so that you see that OnlyFans can play or does play in terms of uh, accessibility to sexual and reproductive health and rights to sex workers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I'm not really sure if these opportunities are there now. They might be, but um, I feel like OnlyFans have made it pretty clear that they <clears throat> that they don't want to be the platform certainly enabling sex workers. And this is especially uh, poignant in light of the false assessment regulations um, that were left in the US, I think in 2017. Um, and they make it illegal, or like they put the blame of the platform, um, they put the blame of sexual acts and if sexual services are being sold, and if this eventually causes harm, all that blame is usually for the person, the yeah, the person enacting the harm. And these legislations put all this blame on the platform enabling this harm. So this made a massive change. Is also partially why uh, regulations on sexuality on Instagram are much stricter, and on Twitter and on Tumblr. Um, and we see that these legislations created an entire sweep of. Um, sexuality off of the internet kind of it's quite difficult now to be um sexual on the internet and to have an open conversation about this and even to spread resources on um, sexual health and on um good ways of having sex and especially for sex workers there were a lot of resources online where they could um spread information to each other and chat and help each other out um when sex work was still primarily or when sex workers were still working live in physical sex work, um, there were uh, tips being uh, yeah being sorted out. There were certain blacklists of clients that they didn't want to speak to, and all the, all of this was uh, exchanged. And um, this all was banned off the internet. And um, there's not really a place right now online where sex workers can speak about their profession in an honest way or where sexuality can be discussed in light of sex work only very strictly in light of education it is sometimes possible but still on instagram we see that um instagram accounts that are providing sexual health education are getting banned and are getting shadow banned or getting thrown off of their accounts so it's really not a good place for uh digital sexual health and i feel like only fans made their decision in that case very clear they want to um stay out of that option of blame and instead of um, distinguishing the difference between um, sexual exploitation and sex work, which is a very important difference, a very important distinction, um, they try to make it look as if they're not a platform enabling sex work and um, yeah, I really don't see them 
putting any changes in that perspective until this legislation changed. But as you said, um, this has very much been pushed by very strict uh, Catholic organizations that sadly are um, more powerful than the sex work organization right now. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. Now, um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us that I haven't asked that you feel you must before we say goodbye? Wow. Um, Support sex workers, sign petitions, follow somebody on OnlyFans that you really like that doesn't necessarily have a lot of followers. Um, Make sure you pay for porn. Find a nice website that produces content that you love and share it. Make sure that you find sex workers on Instagram that you can follow and like and just be there for the community. (laughs) If there's something that I can leave behind, please do that. And thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really fun. Thank you, Lisa. And yes, pay for porn, people. Pay for porn. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing with us your time, your research, and and your work. And we thank you for your work of, you know, continuously um, supporting and being an ally to sex workers. Thank you. Sex workers sell themselves. Fact. Sex workers sell a service. Sex work is a feminist issue. We end this episode by upholding a call to action by Empower Foundation and English Collective of Prostitutes. This is their statement. Sex workers strike against interference in their bodily autonomy in mutual solidarity with all other women. Disabled, transgender, Lesbian, mothers, including single mothers, queer, women of color, women incarcerated, pregnant women, young and old who fight similar battles we do in order to claim their own bodily autonomy. We strike in solidarity with women of color, women incarcerated, begging women, women who use drugs, transgender women, asylum seekers, Muslim women and all women who like sex workers are stigmatized, discriminated against, and persecuted by the law and law enforcement. In that breath, we add that we stand in solidarity with male, gay, queer, and transgender men sex workers. In all the ways possible and accessible to you, dear listener, support sex workers and show solidarity for the decriminalization of sex work. As demonstrated in stepping up to the evidence on HIV and sex work, decriminalize sex work now, the Sex Workers at AIDS 2014 report, which includes outcomes from the Sex Workers pre-conference. Decriminalization is essential to improving the health, safety, and human rights of sex workers. Evidence from places where sex work is is decriminalized, such as New Zealand and New South Wales, Australia, reveals that labor rights for sex workers increases access to HIV and sexual health services. Well, there you have it, folks. I imagine that following today's episode, you probably have learned something new. You feel affirmed in your politics as an intersectional feminist and or you have some questions, comments and follow-ups. Whatever that might be, we invite you to connect with us on social media so we can stay engaged. 
Our next and final episode of this series is on sexual and reproductive health and rights in humanitarian settings. Until then, take good care. The support of Not Your Usual Subjects podcast comes from staff and volunteers at Stories to Action who are conjuring alongside young people situated across borders all around the world. Together, we envision a world where every young person's voice is heard on their sexual health and reproductive rights, even in times of public health emergencies like COVID-19. We would like to honor, thank, and acknowledge all our contributors and guests for sharing their stories to action. ShareNet International Netherlands, who we are so deeply grateful for funding and resourcing this podcast, reminds us of the role that philanthropy in working with youth in their diversity should and can play in raising collective consciousness. Please head on over to share-netinternational.org to find your regional hub. Please commune with us on social media to find out about our next episode and share your feedback, thoughts, and reflections with us. This is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Stories to Action. Links are available on the show notes at the podcasting platform of your choice that you listen to us from. Please share this episode with someone, awesome ones, you know should have a listen. Goodbye.